Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Uh, you know, I, I come into this text of scripture saying, listen, friends, um, we, we need to be really clear that this text is not an ancient text that has no relevance today. It is written for us. And you and I need to be woken up in a sense to the tendency that we all have in our own lives, which is to be our own savior. And, uh, you know, um, Bruce Eaton, um, who shared this morning, he just got back on a two-week. He gave up his Christmas to go into a Middle Eastern country and share the gospel for two weeks. So I met with him and uh, Steve Kowalki uh, Thursday morning. We were meeting about uh, our plans for the architect, and uh, before we met and talked about that, Bruce brought his pictures of this country in the Middle East where he was sharing the gospel. And he was showing um, this group of people, the people that he was sharing the gospel, and they all came from Islamic legalistic countries. One of the countries that uh, they, they were refugees just recently out of Afghanistan. And, uh, and the people that have come out of Afghanistan cannot go back to Afghanistan because of the Taliban. And he was sharing the gospel re with refugees from Iraq who were terribly afraid of being sent back to Iraq because of ISIS still being there. And he was sharing the gospel with some Iranian refugees who do not want to go back to Iran. And, and, he, and he said that um, in the city, you know, it was kind of a, a dismal-looking city, he said regularly in the, in the day the Muslim call to prayer went out. And as the Islamic call to prayer went out, he said what was striking is no one moved. No one changed. That the, the people he was interacting with had given up on Islam. Now, they were identified as Islam. That was their identity. But they were not falling at the calls to prayer because the religious oppression, the hostility they had suffered, had come out of religion. And, and uh, um, Bruce said it was a wonderful opportunity for him and those that were with him to announce to others that Jesus is a gracious Savior and to share them that there is not a list of things you must do to be accepted, but that rather it is finished, that it's done. And I want to tell you that even in the American culture, there are a lot of people who have given up on religion. And they've given up on religion for the very reason that others do in other parts of the world. Because religion often makes us pharisaical critiques of one another. Where we put duties on one another and demands on one another. And we put pressure and we never feel like we're accepted. We never feel like we can perform at the right measure. And dear friends, even in America, it is very important that we get the gospel of grace into our blood. We've got to get it in so we can give it out. 
And so um, as we come into chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus immediately confronts the religious leaders with a core reality in their Jewish structure, the keeping of the Sabbath. And I want you to think about this for a second. This is not some cursory practice that they might um, do on occasion if you were a devout Jew. This was serious business for the Jews because the Sabbath was the sign of their covenantal relationship with God. And so Jesus isn't taking a, uh, a cursory issue. Jesus is confronting them at the core of their identity and the sense of their standing before God. It all, in one sense, hangs on the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath. And Jesus comes into this to announce to them that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh boy. That's why at the end of this chapter, um, they want to kill him. Who has the audacity to say that? They had so moved into the religious practices that upheld the law that they forgot what the law was pointing to. A Savior who had come to rescue them. And so this morning, I want to do a couple of things. In fact, I'm, I'm going to bail on the original sermon I wrote, and I don't know when I'll preach part two of it. But um, uh, I, I was originally going to say I want to do two things in this text because there's two different encounters on the Sabbath day. The first is the encounter here at the beginning where Jesus is walking along with the disciples and they eat grain in the field, and the Pharisees come and ask them, why are they doing that and breaking the law of the Sabbath? And what I want to say to you and to I out of that text of scripture this is a, this is a challenge I want to give you uh, pastorally Waterbrook I want you I, I had two different ways of saying this originally I said I want to give you permission which I do I want to give you permission to learn how to rest uh, 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 but but the way the Bible reads is I actually need to exhort you to do that because <laughs> later you'll see in Hebrews chapter 4 it says strive to enter his rest Everything in, everything in you wants to work your way. Everything in you wants to do it in your own strength. And so it's not just going to happen <laughs> by you just kind of sliding into it. You're going to have to fight a battle, folks. We're going to have to fight. And, and I want to say that. So he, he, that's what we're going to focus on today. I want to exhort you and encourage you to learn the spiritual discipline. Take 2022 and learn a practice that you're going to carry your whole life which is the practice of entering into the rest of Christ. And that's something you're going to have to do every day of your life as a believer. You know, I'll give you a quote um, from Charles Spurgeon, just so you understand. And, and this is confessing myself as well. Spurgeon wrote, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I would be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we're all born legalists. So that from the time you're born, you become very conscious over time that you're a sinner and, and you'll be aware of yourself, you're aware of your fullness, and you, like Adam and Eve, will be very quickly living your life to cover your nakedness and shame, right? That's what we do. We constantly try to feel better about ourselves by our careers, by our identity, by the approval of men, by our religious practices. And friends, we've got to learn another way. And I tell you why we need to learn another way, because it's not all about us. Because to the extent that we become religious performers, we will not be able to rescue those who've been crushed under the law of religious performance. 
We won't be able to carry out the mission of God because we'll be so navel-gazing that we'll either be uh, so self-righteous because we're doing more than other people or self-despairing that we'll have no hope to share with other people. We need the discipline of coming to the Lord of the Sabbath and finding our rest in him. Do you agree? The other part of it, so that's only the first five verses, 6 to 11, which I'm not going to go to today. We're going to go to communion instead. But 6 to 11, I, I want us to learn the discipline of abandoning cynicism. Because what happens in self-righteousness on one hand, is on one hand, I'm trying to rescue myself and trying to get my own righteousness and trying to get some rest before God in and of myself. Cynicism is when I can't see <laughs> righteousness in myself. I can't see the pot potential for righteousness in anybody else either. You know, and there are a lot of Christians, professing Christians, who, who can only see and anticipate disappointment. They can't believe that the Lord of the Sabbath will save the nations. And so we carry in our lives this burden <laughs> that, you know, that we've got to police everybody rather than the freedom to announce that God saves self-righteous Pharisees like Kevin Dibley. And he gives rest to us. And if he can do it for me, right, Paul says, if he can save me, he can save anyone. The chief of sinners, we got to get that in our blood. So that's my goal for you and prayer for you, my invitation and exhortation. I want you to learn the spiritual discipline of entering into Jesus' rest as a way of life. And I want Waterbrook to abandon its cynicism and believe the gospel all over again for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the neighbors, for the sake of our testimony and our witness. So let's start out with this first part, which is the, to learn the exhortation, to learn the spiritual discipline of finding your rest in Jesus Christ. So here's Christ coming. And, and let, me, um, let me just slide along and say this. I sympathize with the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think it's really important for you and I, when we see what's going on here, not to do the default mode um, of becoming Pharisees towards the Pharisees, right? Because there's nothing that makes me f more pharisaical than a Pharisee. <laughs> well, I can't stand your self-righteousness. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these guys. <laughs> as soon as I hear that, I go, man, you're wretched, right? I, you're, you're such a sinner. But here, you know, so one of the things to realize is if, if you were a Jew and you didn't get the gospel, you didn't understand what was going on, and you cared about the nation, the Sabbath keeping was a predominant issue about your identity and about your practice and about what understanding of the law, and you would want to police it. You would want to protect it. So let me show you uh, why um, these uh, religious leaders do what they do. So look at verse 1 of chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now, I like this scene because it's, it's from my childhood. So I grew up in farm country, much like uh, the Midwest, and, and my favorite uncle, who was like my grandfather, farmed corn, wheat, and soybeans. And so in the fall, when the soybeans began to dry like it does around here, this, I still have this conversation with my dad. We, we still talk about where the soybeans are there and where they are here because we would go to my uncle's farm, walk out into the field, and when they turned golden, we loved to pick the grains 
the, the heads of the soybeans, take the shell off, and pop them in like they were peanuts. Now, some people think, you know, they're hard and they taste kind of, you know, dull or whatever like that. For me, it's like honey, right? Because it's got all the memory of my uncle's farm and all that kind of stuff. And I have to restrain myself in Minnesota from pulling my car and going into some guy's field. I figure, you know, I'll get arrested as a pastor for trespassing because I'm out eating soybeans in some guy's farm like a maniac. But I want to do it all the time, you know. So here are the disciples. They're walking on the Sabbath day. They're picking heads of grain. And along comes the law, right? It says in verse 2, Some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. So let's just stop and say, here they are, guardians of the Sabbath. And I want you to hear this because the Sabbath carried great significance and weight for them. It identified them with the God of Israel, the creator God who rested on the Sabbath day. It identified them as the redeeming, with the redeeming God who brought them out of captivity into Egypt and made them a people. It identified them as a God who took them into a land of Sabbath, the land of Canaan, which would become their land. It was all about their God and they as his people. But listen to how it reads in Exodus chapter 31, verse 12 to 14. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, listen to this line, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Does that give some significance to the weight of the Sabbath? Why? For this is a sign. What I want you to hear is, he's not just saying, oh, it's a sign, a symbol. It is a covenant sign written into the very Ten Commandments. It is a covenant sign of our relationship. You are a special people and I am your God. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you might know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall what? Be put to death. So imagine in Jesus' day, you're serious about the law. Tom Schreiner writes, Charging someone with working on the Sabbath, he said, was not minor since the death penalty was the death was the penalty for those who worked on the Sabbath. And so in Numbers chapter 15, there's a scene where a man is, is found gathering wood, sticks, on the Sabbath day, and they bring him in and decide what to do, and God says, put him to death. This is a holy covenant sign. So you've got to feel the weight of that. Let's not get pharisaical about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, uh, uh, Tom says, uh, uh, Tom Shiner says, are concerned that such violations would bring God's wrath upon Israel, and thus they view Jesus as being far too casual with what God has commanded. And so they're, they see themselves as the protectors of the nation. And, and, and they're coming along and seeing Jesus with his disciples, this new wine guy, coming along, going to do his own thing. It's just far too casual. Because doesn't Israel have the history of just sliding back and then getting back onto the treadmill and trying to get right with God and sliding back and God sending them off into captivity, sending them off into the nations, and they're experiencing const the constant cycle of catastrophe. Right? That's what they're going through. And they're going, we got to stop this. And there was kind of a... A, a passionate, zealous, protecting, conservative view of the law at this point in time. Here's Jesus and his disciples walking along. They say, um, breaking the law, being too casual. Why are they doing this? Now, it's interesting because what I want you to see is that 
um, Jesus has to shock them. He's got to put the paddles on them. He's got to shock them with, his, with the answer that he gives because, and, and Tom Schreiner uh, points this out as well, there were actually texts of scripture where they could have justified themselves. There's a text of scripture uh, that says that they can actually, and it says in, uh, let me see if I can grab it here. Um, I've got it on one of these pages. I'll never find it now that I say I'm looking for it. There's a, there's a, a, a text of scripture in, I think it's Numbers, where they uh, where they're told that if they're walking along and they're gathering grain, they can't pull out the scythe and take a whole bunch of grain and, you know, bundle it up and walk with them. But they can do this thing where you take your hand, grab the, the grain and feed as you're walking. That's actually in the law. And Jesus could have just went back to the law, quoted the law and said, this is, this is what um, the law says. We're not doing anything against the law, but he doesn't do that. He goes to First Samuel and uh, he points out in chapter 21 a story about David. I want you to go there with me. First Samuel chapter 21. Because in the text of Scripture, uh, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus kind of, in some senses, indicts David, doesn't try to defend David. But in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he quotes from 1 Samuel 21, and he says to the Pharisees, did not David, when he was with his men, do what was what? Unlawful. And, and he goes, David broke the law. Now, wh what's he doing when he says to them, did David break the law or not break the law? With regard to the Sabbath. And he points him, he says, David was actually a lawbreaker. And, and, and why would he point them? Because to them, David was somebody special. David had special privilege. David was not destroyed, either refused by the priest or destroyed by God for what he did when he broke the Sabbath. Why? Because David was an anticipation, and they knew this, of a greater David that was yet to come. This activity of David, which was unlawful, would be anticipating the greater David who would come as the Lord of the Sabbath. And he was pointing ahead to that. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? <laughs> and so he's, what's happening is David and his men are fleeing Saul. Jonathan's warned him. They're fleeing from Saul. Saul wants to kill him. David's fleeing with his men. They come to the priest. The priest knows something's up. Why are you guys here? Oh, no. This, this, can, this cannot be good. And it says, And David said to him, Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter with, about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And so, uh, what's David doing right there? Just as an aside. He's lying, right? David's lying. He's coming here, and, and he's telling them, well, I'm on a, a mission sent by King Saul. We got a special thing going on here, and me and my men need a little help. Can you help us out? And so, the priest says to him, it says in, uh, 
in verse 3, Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there's only holy bread. Do you know what that bread is? Hey, that's the consecrated bread. That's the show bread. And in the, in the worship of Israel, on the Sabbath, so this is why Jesus goes here, this is the breaking of a Sabbath law, that the showbread was placed on the Sabbath day by the priests as consecrated to God, and only the priests could eat it. When they were consecrated, it was holy bread. And only the priests were allowed to participate in eating the bread of the presence. David rolls in. He is not a priest. He's a king, eventually, but he's not even that. He's running from the king. And it says, and the priest answered, verse 4, I have no common bread, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. What's going on here? Now go back to, go back to Luke chapter 6, and let's listen to what Jesus says here. Jesus, Luke chapter 6, verse 3, And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. What is Jesus saying here? He's going back to the first Samuel and said, Didn't David do what was unlawful? He did. He did what he wasn't supposed to do, but he was given special privilege to do that. Why? Because he was David. And I got to tell you something. There is a greater David here right now. And that David is able to give the bread of present of the presence to his people. And he has come, Revelation text, that text I read, uh, tells us that he has made us all a kingdom of priests. Guess what, folks? He is the greater David who has come to give us his living bread. We are the priests that get to participate in it. Right? That's what's happening here. It is, the answer to this is not, oh, this is a technicality in the rule. This is not a technicality in the rule. This is the promised Messiah, the king that has come, the greater David. Now listen to what also he says here. He said, Jesus says here in verse 5, And he said to him, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. If you want to know why they want to kill him, this is why... In part, they want to kill him. The keeping of the Sabbath law was not Israel's law, was not Israel's rest. It was the coming to the Sabbath Lord. Got that? It wasn't keeping the law. It was coming to Christ. The, the, the law of the Sabbath was pointing ahead to a greater Sabbath, a greater rest. So how does Jesus answer him? I am the son of David who brings the bread of the presence of God. <laughs> I've been in the presence of God. I bring holy bread. I am the holy bread. I am the bread of life. That's who I am. I am the son of man. Do you know that son of man language? 
He is announcing himself to be the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, a vision where God would send his great ruler, one from the clouds of glory. We would see the Son of Man coming in, and all the nations will come to him. That's revelation. He is the, the, Lord, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who is here. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who defines what the Sabbath is. He is the one who fulfills what the Sabbath is. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one in, wh in whom we find rest. And so when I come to you this morning and we're studying this text and I say to you, I want you to learn the spiritual discipline of finding your rest in Christ, it's because Christ is saying this whole Sabbath practice has been a covenant sign set up to get you looking not for a practice in which you can get on the treadmill and run and get yourself right with God. You're looking not for a practice, you're looking for a person. And he is the one who brings you your rest. He's the one who gives you your rest. So this is picked up in a different place in Scripture, but I would like you to go to Hebrews chapter 4, if you would. Hebrews chapter 4, because I want to I show you how to enter into this rest as a regular discipline of your life. The writer to the Hebrews exhorts the, the Hebrew Christians and I want you to re remember this. I believe he's writing to Christians, telling them you need to enter this rest. You need to strive to enter this rest. So listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. He's quoting and he's, he's echoing back the Psalms, which warns that if, you, if God has sworn, if you do not respond to him, you will not enter his rest. And then he says this in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. And then he says these words. For good news came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith with those who listened. So let me ask this question. How do you enter the rest that Christ brings, that the Lord of the Sabbath brings? You enter it by believing the good news. That's how you do it. it the, the message of good news has to be received by faith. It's believing. How are you saved as a Christian? We are saved by grace through faith. You have to believe the message. And I'm telling you, what it's teaching here is not that you believe the message once at the beginning of your life. This is our rest. We, the rest of our lives, have to receive the gospel every day, every morning. i got to get out of bed. And as my mind begins to say, Dibley, get on the treadmill of righteousness. Kevin, you got to do this. you got to fix this. you got to get right. i got to slow down in here. No, no, no. Believe it is finished. The work is done. Christ has satisfied the justice of God. He's my rest. You got to do that every day. That's why I am thankful for Gabe passionately pleading in song over us all service long to hear and believe the gospel. That's what you're doing, right, brother? You're shepherding your soul. You're shepherding the worship team. You're shepherding the pastors. You're shepherding the church to say, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Can you believe it? Do you believe it? Believe it. That's what you got to do, folks. The, the biggest, most important spiritual discipline you will practice every day of your life is believing the good news and preaching it to yourself over and over when you feel insecure. Because you know what? There's nothing the opposite of rest than not believing the good news. 
getting up and thinking, boy, if I, if I get better at prayer and I study the book of Revelation and I do this and I do this, then maybe I'll get right with God. Oh, my dear friends, Jesus has made you right with God. Believe it. Let everything flow out of it. Let it be a response of faith. Let it be a rejoicing of faith. Let it be weeping over the reality of his grace over your life. But my dear friends, believe it. Believe, believe, believe the gospel. Second thing it says here is that, let's just go on in the text down to verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he points back and says, you know, there was a rest. The first time we hear of this is when God rests on the seventh day of creation. Six days he worked, the seventh day he rested. For Israel, that was holy, right? And then he says, but that wasn't, re- that wasn't the final rest because then after again it says in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David in Psalm 95, uh, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I want to say that to you today. Friends, don't harden your heart. Enter his rest today. Believe the gospel today. Stop the treadmill of religiosity today. Stop it. Just believe. Just receive. But he said, this is what he's saying. The covenant of the Sabbath was based on creation. Then it's based on the rescue from Egypt, on redemption. And yet they still hadn't entered rest because there's this whole journey into the promised land. And then when they go into the promised land under Joshua, they get into the promised land. Did they get to rest? No, they rebelled, they sinned, they did the whole cycle. That's the problem that they go on in there, such that David, after Joshua, after the land is settled, after everything is placed, David goes and says, quotes in the psalm, you still haven't entered to the rest, and today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. you got the psalm saying there is a rest yet to come. Jesus is saying this is the rest. This is the rest. It's pointing ahead to him. So listen to what it says. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For who has ever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore what? Strive to enter that rest. Let me just say it again. The most difficult thing as Spurgeon said, for a legalist is to enter the rest of God. It's the most difficult thing. You have to fight everything in you that wants to be your own Savior. It's hard to see the Savior while you're trying to be the Savior. Look at him. Look at him. He says, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intention of your heart. All I have to say to you is, it is finished. And, you'll, and in your heart, you will, you will be pierced to the heart and you'll get your motives revealed, Right? You have nothing to do by which you can prove yourself to God. There is no religious activity by which you can increase your standing from God. There is nothing you can do. Listen to that. 
Because in your heart, if you hear any argument, you're seeing your, your legalism, your Phariseeism. And we all have it. The word of God comes in and shows us that we want to be our own savior. And the history of Israel is no one can save Israel except Israel's hope. Israel's Christ. Israel's king. Israel's David. Israel's son of man. The Lord of the Sabbath. Only him. So it says here in verse 13, And no creatures hidden from his sight, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So this is how you learn the spiritual discipline of entering the practice. Every day, believe the gospel and continually as the people of God, hold that confession as your highest confession. Let's say, that's why they wrote confessions. They wrote confessions. I, I have in my Bible, this, this, this version has all the creeds in the back of it. And the reason for all of that in these creeds and these confessions is down through the ages, there's a constant kind of pressing in on religion and a corruption of the free grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, we need to build barriers. There is one name under heaven by which men can be saved. And the work of Christ on the cross is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament anticipated. And by his name alone can men be saved. That's what it is. We've got to hold that fast. When we sing, he will hold me fast. You know what we're doing? We're holding fast to he who holds us fast. He will hold me fast. Isn't that, aren't you glad we sing that over one another? This isn't, if you're at home and you're feeling alone, you don't have to hold yourself fast. You just have to let him hold you fast because he holds you by the palm of, in the palm of his hand. And he has written you on the palm of his hand. And he has bought you with his blood. That's what we confess. We confess it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so nobody boasts. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Notice what it says here also. Verse 6, uh, Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect is tempted as we are yet without sin. That's the difference between the great David and the old David. The old David was a sinner. The new David was absolutely holy. And he bore our unrighteousness on our behalf so that we might wear his righteousness. And it says, he, we have one who is able to sympathize us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, I look at that verse and I think this is the daily life of the believer. The daily life of the believer is to say, why am I so exhausted? Why am I so weary? Why am I so afraid of what people think of me? Why am I dragging my butt around full of guilt and shame? Why, do I, why am I afraid to go to church and seem like a hypocrite? Why do I not want to read my Bible? Because I'm my own Savior. And I can't do it anymore. I'm too tired. I'm too weary, and I'm too weak. And then I hear this voice come to me, those of you who are what? Weary and heavy laden. And I will give you? 
rest. Take my yoke upon me on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus is saying unburdened. That last verse says get up every day and say, Jesus, I am addicted to saving myself. Save me. I'm addicted to working my way home. Help me. And I'll tell you, he hears the Pharisee who's tired of being a Pharisee. He hears the fundamentalist Baptist who's sick and tired of pointing the finger at everybody else while in the shadows feeling shame and guilt. He says, come out. I paid it all. And I can handle all your junk. His burden is not heavy. And he takes all our burdens. Aren't you glad for that? So my dear friends, the the exhortation from one of your pastors, which we all agree on, one of your elders, which we all agree on, if you do anything this year, please, learn the spiritual discipline of entering into the rest of Jesus Christ. Daily. Constantly. Eat the bread of the presence of the King of Kings who has come to give you his holiness and his life. Let's pray for one another. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to take communion, we lift our eyes off our poor performance. We take our eyes off of sin and shame. And we look to the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ did not come to give us another set of laws by which to stand in our own righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill the law of God so that he might supply righteousness to us. It is done. Oh God, I'm not good at this. I agree with Spurgeon. I've been trying to fix myself since the day I was born. And every time I do, I just make a mess of it. But I thank you, dear God, that there is one who will hold me fast. Oh, Jesus, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you, precious Lord. Help us, oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.